You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Or Matty Moritz with a, a, a daredevil descent off the Poggio. There are my two selections, I think. I'll go That's with those. That's a very good shout, I think. Yeah. Well, welcome to the first episode of Arrive, our uh, ref- instant reflections on the first monument of the season, Milan San Remo. And we opened there with a little clip from our preview episode. Now, a lot of you have requested no spoilers in the titles to these episodes. But I'm not sure what we can do about spoilers in our preview episodes, chaps, because there, I think it was me uh, tipping Mate Mohoric for the win. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut um, every now and then, every few years. <laughs> no. Even even uh, a broken watch um, <laughs> gets the time uh, right twice a day. From from buffalo to blind squirrel. I mean, Lionel was quick to, to see the sense in that. Daniel's suspiciously quiet over there in Berlin. And uh, I take his silence, I interpret his silence as... He thought Matty Moritz had no chance of winning Man San Remo. But we have... Now, Daniel, let's kick this off because this is going to be a, a punchy episode. You called this the best 10 minutes of the cycling season. Do you think we saw just now, half an hour or so ago, the best 10 minutes of the cycling season so far, at least? Uh, the, the 10 minutes was slightly inaccurate. It's more like 15 or 20, isn't it? I suppose. I'm just thinking I'm, it's 9. Is it 9.8 kilometers to go when the Poggio starts? Which took feels like 10 minutes. Taken them about 14, 15 minutes, I guess, 16 minutes maybe. Um, but yes, it was absolutely electrifying, um, more so than your average Milan San Remo, wasn't it? Because of what had come before, you know, we we had been told to expect a well something special from Tadej Pogacar, a surprise, or um, at least. Something that wasn't particularly unexpected, but perhaps unconventional, unorthodox. And that's what we got um, from UAE, uh, an onslaught on the Cipresa, which really conditioned the rest of the race, didn't it? Did they also, um, was the onslaught also at their own expense to some extent? Because they they seemed slightly undermanned and there was a moment where Pogacar seemed to be looking around for teammates. I mean, you know, he didn't win in the end, so we can be critical of their tactics, but... Jan Palance did a lot of heavy lifting, then Davide Formolo uh, and Diego Ulisi in the end, but might he have expected a bit more firepower on the Cipressa in particular? I, I don't think you could really um, expect them to do any more damage than they did. I mean, it was it was pretty unprecedented. I mean, Lionel, I don't know what um, you thought, but I certainly don't remember a, a San Remo where the group has been that small going over the Cipressa, and not only... Was it only 30 riders or so? But not many riders came back um, in on the straight road between the Chipress and the Poggio. So it was, a, it was a clean cut. And I think they knew that Pogacar's only chance was, well, was the attack on the Poggio. They didn't really have a second card. So, you know, I, I think the point you make, Rich, is definitely true. But of other riders, of the, all of the... All of the quick riders, the Van Arts and the Pedersons and even to a certain extent Van der Poels, they were the ones who needed more teammates and um, certainly a teammate on the other side of of the Poggio. And my key thesis of this po- of this podcast is going to be that Primoz Roglic cost, well, Van Aert, Milan San Remo. Well, Primoz Roglic's absence um, on the other side of the Poggio is what really cost Wout Van Aert. 
And perhaps the GP Denain on Thursday cost Primoz Roglic because he made quite a big effort then. Lionel, um, have you got a kind of summary of, of the race? The summary of the monument. Yeah, we haven't really come up with a, a tale of the attack equivalent, have we? But I have, uh, Richard, because, well, the first three quarters of the race was pretty much completely uneventful. But I was left with a couple of takeaways. Uh, in the a preview episode we released in the week, I described Milan San Remo as a, a how done it rather than a who done it. And I'm sort of images of. Matej Mohoric as Professor Plum in the library. It was Mohoric on the descent of the Poggio with the carbon fibre piping. Uh, he is the Slovenian champion, of course. Keeps up Slovenia's run of wins in World Tour races. Uh, the other thought was... Well, he, won was a, he won ahead of Colonel Mustard, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Colonel laughs> the, fly, the flying yeah. lemon meringue pie, yeah, as he's yeah. now dubbed. Anyway, we got to that. Get Colonel Mustard. No, it's Anthony Turgis, I thought. Oh, okay. Anyway. Yeah, of course. Um, very inconsiderate of the Milan San Remo organisers to schedule the race, so it clashed with Pogacar's interval session, his four attacks on the Poggio you know in quick succession. I heard four. I counted six. I've just watched it back, and I counted six. Um, well, certainly oh, six. Four proper ones. Well, four when he was the, the rider who launched the, the attack, but four, um, six if you include the two when he went after riders who were attacking and there was a bit of a gap behind. But that's not an attack, is it? Well, that's a what, reaction. Well, anyway, I mean, six, let's not, six let's not, distinct accelerations. There'll be six, six bumps in his power file. Yeah, true, true. Well, let's just recap the race as it unfolded then. The pre-race story was really all about the absentees, wasn't it? No Julian Alaphilippe or Jasper Sturven, no Sonny Colbrelli, Caleb Ewan, Sam Bennett, Vincenzo Nibali, lots of big names missing uh, almost all of them because of illness, but one notable return starting his first race of the season to the surprise of pretty much everybody, including people at Canyon, the, the bike uh, suppliers for Alpacin Phoenix, who I was speaking to last week. Uh, Matthew van der Poel started the race, his first race of the season, coming back from injury, of course, from last season. Milan San Remo, 293 kilometres long, and the break went in kilometre zero, the, well, well kilometre one, really. Technically, did Van der Poel's reappearance qualify for the James Brown analogy? The please, please, please <laughs> award. Maybe that's a new award. Do you know? It did remind me a little bit, much less spectacular, much less shocking, but it reminded me a little bit of Marco Pantani reappearing, resurf resurfacing miraculously for the 2000 Giro when it was starting from the Vatican, having been missing for months before that. I, it was a bit like, I don't know, Prince turning up halfway through a James Brown concert just to kind of wow everybody. I don't know. Anyway, as I say, the break went right at the start. There were two riders from Astana, uh, Yevgeny Gidic and Artyom Zakharov, uh, Lotto Sudal's Filippo Conca, Filippo Taliani and Ricardo Zurita of Drone Hopper. Diego Sevilla and Samuele Vivi of Iolo and Alessandro Tonelli of Bardiani and they were away all day. The gap never went much beyond seven minutes. It hovered between five and seven minutes all day. Back in the bunch, Jos van Emden of Jumbo Visma was doing the Tim de Klerk role, wasn't he? With a bit of help from Jacopo Mosca of Trek at times. But the it was well, it was Van Emden riding extremely strongly just to keep that break in check. We didn't really see anything of significance happen until the Capo Berta, which was the last of the three climbs before the Cipressa. That's when Tom Pidcock of Ineos was dropped. He hasn't raced since Kerner Brussels Kerner and was ill before Strada Bianchi, so perhaps not such a surprise. And then just before the Cipressa, is there a worse place to have a mechanical problem? Peter Sagan 
the chain got jammed. There seemed to be some problem with the chain looping underneath the jockey wheels beneath his rear derailleur. And that was pretty much the end of his chances. On the Cipressa, Rivi and Tonelli were the two men in the lead. UAE and Jumbo Visma were the teams on the front of the bunch. Elia Viviani and Fabio Jakobsen were dropped. As you said, uh, Polanch and Formolo of UAE set a really strong pace, and it was that which did the damage. The group was whittled down to about 30-ish. Tonelli and Rivi did lead onto the Poggio, but were caught immediately. Then we saw Pogacar's interval session of between four and six attacks slash accelerations, depending on your definition. There was a quite a critical crash midway down the bunch going round a corner as they went up the Poggio, which split that group into two. And shortly after that, Soren Anderson of DSM forced really the decisive move. Pogacar, Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel responded to that. But it was Matej Mohoric, the Slovenian champion, who got across to them as they went over the uh, top of the Poggio and, and down the very beginning of the descent. There was that hairy moment where he had to bunny hop himself back onto the road when it looked like he looked down or took his eyes off the road a bit. And then on the run-in, he had another hairy moment. His chain appeared to slip and certainly missed a few uh, pedal And he had revs. another one on the descent as well, a second one on the descent where an uneven bit of the road seemed to throw his bike and he again left the road and, and came back on. It was, it was hair-raising. But he got into the final 500 metres and, and pretty much had it then, despite a very spirited move by Anthony Turgis, who was, uh, well, making up for the fact that his teammate Peter Sagan was not there. Matthew van der Poel, an incredible third place in his first race of the season. But as you say, Daniel, it was a humdinger of the last 18 and a half minutes. And, I mean, you haven't mentioned the, the dropper seat post that Matty Mohoric used, which he revealed in his post-race interview. Obviously, mountain biking technology there, um, allowing him to just take the descent, well, a, a bit more safely, supposedly, and more comfortably. A risk, though, um, I mean, he's obviously tried it a lot in training, but, um, you know, you wouldn't want it to be stuck down and him come to the finish looking like he's on a bike three sizes too small for him. I actually, watching the descent again of the, the Poggio, you know, it's really fascinating to watch it. This is always a really interesting to race to watch with hindsight, you know, knowing the result, because to watch what Marich did on, on the climb and, uh, you know, always trying to, to hide, to be there, but not be making the kinds of accelerations that Pogacar and others were making all the way up, remember, Um he then bridged across over the over the over the top and went to the front and, and attacked on the descent. Now Pogacar was a length or so behind him when he left that the road for the first time. And it was at that moment that the gap actually opened because I think Pogacar got frightened. Um you know, I thought that I thought he I think he thought that um Moritz was taking too many risks that he might well take himself out of the race. But you can see on the replay that Pogacar you know, eases off in response to Mohoric leaving the road and bunny hopping back on. I think that was the moment where he got he got the gap that he managed to hold. Yes, Rich. I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, this will go down as a Milan Sanremo that was won on the descent of the Poggio like Sean Kelly's in 1992, um, Moser in 1980. I'm sure Sean Kelly also used the dropper <laughs> post, no? In, um, in 1984, Moser won in a similar way, but... I, I almost don't think that where he went really mattered. I think you know, what was absolutely key was the composition of the group. And you got this scenario again, and it's just becoming such a weird race, Milan-San Remo, in that, you know, we say it's not for sprinters anymore, but 
subsequent to that sort of collective attack by UAE over the Cipresa, it was mainly fast guys in that bunch, in that bunch of 20 riders. It wasn't 25 climbers. It was mainly guys like Maz Pedersen, Giacomo Nizzolo, Gamay of, of um, Intermarché and, and riders of that ilk. Um, and then, you know, you always get this situation on the other side of the Poggio when people start looking at each other and they're always vulnerable then to the attack we've we talked about Ghana maybe doing it we talked um in the podcast the other the other day about sort of Cancellara having done it years ago and it, it's always something that, that can happen if people start looking at each other and and that is always likely when there are when there are fast riders which th- there were a whole glut of riders um who sort of would have fancied themselves in a sprint, but were also scared of of other riders in that bunch. And that's where one of them needed a teammate and none of them had a teammate at all. But I almost think that Mohoric, I mean, descending is his sort of superpower. And in fact, he's shown it before in Milan San Remo. Um, he's got a really good record in that race or has over the last few years and has shown it on the descent of the Poggio. But he almost could have gone at the bottom of the descent because I think that the hesitation may well have been the same. Yeah, I mean, Mohoric should be remembered. He missed uh, Tirreno Adriatico because he crashed in Strade Bianche a couple of weeks ago. And the other superpower is that he's very good in long races. Six of his eight World Tour race wins have been in uh, long races of over 200 kilometres. Even his Vuelta stage win in 2017 was 207k, which is long by Vuelta standards. His Giro stage win was 244 kilometres. And of course, last year in the Tour de France, he won the two longest stages, one of which was the the one to Le Cruzo, 249 kilometres. So, yeah, fast at the end of long attritional races. And as you say, he did um, he did keep himself out of sight a bit, but you could see him sort of 15, 20 back, just always coming round people, moving up, making sure he's in the right place. And he did have a couple of very helpful riders, teammates with him. Damiano Caruso was there very late on and Jan Tratnik as well, who Richard, you also mentioned uh, in the preview episode. He didn't go for his long uh, <laughs> no. solo next ride. Year. For the next year, he'll go, from, he'll go from probably the outskirts of Milan, maybe. Um, but no, it was a well put together move. It was an all or nothing one. And that's what we talked about last week, isn't it? It's It's basically one key move will always trump that kind of repeated effort by Pogacar. I'm sure he was hoping he might pull a little group away. But oddly, because the group was 30 and then 15, there was much more incentive for everyone to kind of close up and keep it all back together. Whereas if that had been maybe 100 riders, you might have seen more of a sort of front-end split of sort of six or seven, and then Pogacar would have had something smaller to work with. So in a funny way, the, the smaller group may well have worked against Pogacar's moves. I also thought coming into the bottom of the podium that that small group really um, was to the benefit of Matthew van der Poel because remember last year, he does struggle for position sometimes and he was well well out of position last year when they began the Poggio the small group allowed him to be where he needed to be I, it also occurred to me watching Mohoric that you know it's it's less than a year since the UCI banned the super tuck position that he you know his he kind of pioneered those those positions may not have been the first but it seemed to be a key part of his descending skill the the extreme positions that's been banned and yet it doesn't seem to matter he he has adapted and his descending skill hasn't hasn't been he hasn't been sort of decapitated by that by that rule he's he's responded and he's still a lethal a lethal weapon on 
the descents. But you know, he does also have he has some terrible crashes as well, doesn't he? Like, I mean, Nibali, Nibali's famous for his descending, but also his terrible. Yeah, crashes. we've said this, we've said this many times, haven't we? It's a characteristic of the really good fast descenders, and you know, I've said on numerous occasions that we we'll talked about the ability to correct mistakes, and I felt that was a a, a massive um, hallmark of Peter Sagan's defending um, descending when when he was at his best in the Tour de France, you know, going downhill, that you would often see him, you know, three, four times on a descent, um, he would take the wrong line, but he would correct it. And we saw that from Mohoric um, today, didn't we? There were at least two or three corners that he took the long, the wrong line on. And, you know, you talk about crashes, Rich. I mean, last year he had one of the worst that I can remember, or one of the most spectacular that I can remember, the Giro in the stage to Campo Felice. And well, he he pulled out of that race, but he'd actually wanted to continue, you know, almost seconds after getting back on his bike and having landed on his head. Um, and yeah, he's he's managed throughout the course of his career, to, you know, despite the few crashes that he's had, not to lose any of that edge. I think one thing that should be said about the descent and the running is just how close the motorbikes were on the descent, not just the. Um, the camera bike but there were a couple of bikes in front of Mohoric weren't there on the way down nothing he can do about that um, it's not his responsibility apart from get as close as possible well other than yeah other than to get as close as possible but I mean talking to riders from yesteryear you know and and the skill of descending in general they do take a lead from the line the motorbikes take and they can they know instinctively um, you know how much they can push things and obviously the motorbike is providing a bit of shelter. And I do think, I mean, this is just a, a real sort of um, knee-jerk reaction to it, but it is something that does seem to uh, blight the Italian races a little bit more. You know, the Belgian races have clusters of motorbikes, but the Italian races, the Giro, you often see the motorbike incredibly close to uh, the front of the peloton. It's funny, Lionel. I was watching Italian Eurosport the other day, and they were saying which... Um uh, we'll talk about pot calling uh, kettle black the Italian commentators were talking about Belgian races being particularly susceptible and particularly bad for this but I mean I think you're definitely right but to complain about the motorbikes in Milan San Remo in 2022 uh, when you've seen what it was like in sort of the mid 90s or the 80s I mean it, it, just go and look on YouTube at some of those editions I mean there was a whole sort of phalanx of, of motorbikes and it's, it's almost part of the charm part of the, the kind of wiles of Milan San Remo in fact um, on our Spanish sister podcast um, the other day Pedro Jorillo the former Mape rider told a story about Paolo Bettini uh, explaining to the rest of his team when he, I think before he won in 2003, that um, he was going to attack in a, in a specific point, not because that was the best place to attack, but because that was where the motorbikes tended to congregate the or the, the, the motorbikes tended to slow down to get the best picture. But it was a particularly um, scenic, particularly photogenic point on the Poggio. And, you know, I've talked a lot and I talked in this episode about the spot on the Poggio where attacks have always gone. And, um, you know, based on this story, it almost sounded as though th- that spot became such the uh, the the ideal point at which to launch an attack because of the motorbikes because the motorbikes thought it was a great picture from there the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport 
fueled by science. This is a relay by the Cycling Podcast, supported by Map. A huge thanks to our long-time sponsor, Science and Sport, for their continued support of the Cycling Podcast. For twenty-five percent off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and use the code SISCP25 at the checkout. And a big thank you to to Map, who have come on board with the Cycling Podcast this year. And thanks to their support that we are able to do things like this, bring you a new spin-off show, Arrivé, which will be coming out following at least all the monuments. Um, and, well, we'll see how it goes, see how you like it. Tell us what you think. Um, email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and um, go and have a look at Map's beautiful clothing at map.cc. Well, chaps, Milan-San Remo um, is a fascinating race, isn't it? Um, it does kind of all boil down to, well... Cipressa and Poggio and the descent of the Poggio um, but you were commenting Daniel that the composition of the lead group um, is it's a curious mix of talents isn't it with sprinters and grand tour winners and classic specialists and we've said it before but it's the only one of the only races in the year when you see all those guys kind of slugging it out together um, I mean that's a trend that you think has accelerated or something has changed in the way that Milan San Remo is contested yeah I mean we talked about it the other day didn't we the the switch to seven man teams I think it was 2018 was the first edition how I think you know that that change was made across the board of world tour races one rider fewer in in grand tours as well so it went down to eight but I think of all the races on the calendar Milan San Remo is maybe the one that's been affected the most by that and yeah, it's, it's really not comparable to any other classic or any other one-day race when you, again, look at the sort of constellation of riders that are left at the end. Riders who, you know, their very nature, if you apply it to other races, is such that, you know, you expect them to be surrounded by a gaggle of domestiques or a lead-out train, or and, and yet they're all left on their own at the end of Milan-San Remo. And it kind of makes you wonder what exactly is the physio well the physiological profile of the of the perfect Milan San Remo rider nowadays and then on the other hand you have you know Tade Pogacar who okay is kind of outside of well every other Venn diagram that really applies to professional cycling at the moment he can do pretty much everything so riders like that the best grand tour riders of the day can still be in contention but you know I just look at the top 15 and and I'm sort of left scratching my head it, I find it quite baffling like a bunch of random names yeah. just put together it's some some good cyclists gathered together um Lionel what did you make of Pogacar and you know we, we the, the strategy was obvious make it really hard on the Cipressa and try and set something up for the Poggio um there have been rumours the last couple of days that, that Pogacar has been suffering from a, a cold as well, so we thought he might not be at his best, but he didn't look he didn't look under par. It's just the Poggio is a fascinating climb that isn't quite hard enough for him to carve out that difference to achieve that clean cut that Daniel mentioned. And that's what makes it so interesting, isn't it? And so intriguing and entertaining. It is, absolutely. Uh, and I think that the absence of Julian Alaphilippe, perhaps, and uh, I, I don't know about Jasper Sturven, but certainly Alaphilippe, somebody to riff with Pogacar, that was the missing ingredient, really, wasn't it? Because when Pogacar went 
somebody reacted um uh, the, the second or the third of well i'm struggling now because daniel's messed with my definition of the moves but the one that so I say, um, there was I, I noted down there was first one was 8.2 kilometers ago then 7.8 then 7.4 then 7.2 then 7. No, sorry then 6.6 then 6.4 yeah, there's two of those that I'm counting as reactions rather than accelerations. There was the one that Wout van Aert reacted to first, wasn't there? And then van der Poel rode across. And then had, you know, they been able to cooperate. And as I say, had the, the gap behind, the group behind been that much bigger, um, there might have been less incentive to, to close up. But it was a sort of, well, if we don't close up now, that could be gone. So that brought that one back together. The second... Uh, of the the big moves that Pogacar made, I think it was Aaron Buru of Movistar who reacted, wasn't it? Um, and th- you know that didn't look strong enough to to do anything. But what it was missing was the the next move over the top. And as I say, Alaphilippe would have been uh, as aggressive, or certainly would have been um, interested in trying to force something away. Um, and as you say, the the problem for the sprinters is they are left with only their one card to play, which is to hope it comes down to a sprint and hope that their legs are fast enough. They're not going to risk chasing something down or, um, uh, you know, making a move themselves unless they can be certain that it will stick. And no one can be certain of anything sticking and, until the, the one move that Mohoric made um, obviously did. But I think that the absence of anyone willing to sort of go into um, tandem with Pogachar was what meant that it was it was always going to sort of come down to something happening on the descent. All chaps, I mean the the lack of a willing co-conspirator, or you know, I talked the other day about overcomplicating things at Milan San Remo, and they, you know, we've already said they did one very novel thing, UAE, by making the race so hard on the Cipressa. They also did another another novel thing, or Pogachar did by attacking in an unusual place on the Poggio right at the bottom um you know would he have been better served to just throw the kitchen sink at it at, on the traditional spot um you know a kilometer before the the summit where the the winning moves have always gone on the Poggio he really telegraphed it as well didn't he he's on the drops the, the whole way up the Poggio and I saw him on the drops uh uh, just as they were, as Ulysses, I think, went to the front at the foot of the podio, and I thought it's coming, it's coming any second now. I mean, in the end, we talked the other day, and we saw it last year with Stuyven, maybe to some extent with Moritz this year as well. That as we're looking at all the 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 the, the real kind of A-listers, the Van Arts, Van der Poels, and and Pogacars, um, Moritz slips away, uh, and the other guys that made a real difference, Soren Crow Anderson, um, you know, that attack by him in the traditional place was, it looked like it had been rehearsed and was, was, was planned. We saw him last year as well, of course, bridge up to um, Jasper Stuyven and was the forgotten man of that, Milan Sanremo. Probably, it was probably thanks to him that Stuyven won last year. And again, Crow Anderson, a really crucial role this year. It's those wild cards, Rich. As you say, Stoven last year, Mohoric to a certain extent this year, Soren Crownson again today, where there's just three or four seconds of shall we, shouldn't we chase him? Mm. Um, my energies might be better served chasing a Vanar or a Pogacar than a Soren Crownson. And they're the guys that have tended to break the elastic. Just following up on what you said earlier, Daniel, Roglic, I mean, Christophe Laporte as well was somebody who you might have fancied hanging on to that group. And had they been able to help Van Aert down the other side, that might have made a real difference because Van Aert would have 
fancied his chances in in the sp- in the sprint. Um, although I'm sure Vanderpool, who in in the end was third and did win that sprint, might have given him a, a very close run. Uh, but what did you feel? Uh, Roglic in particular did did wrong. Well, he was so I look back at the footage and he was you know ostensibly on the back of the group um, that went over the Poggio um, behind it was Pogacar and Crowndis and then slightly further back was Van der Poel and Van Aert and then it was I think it was only two or three seconds then a group of about um, ten riders um, followed and Roglic was sort of safely in that group but. Things happen so quickly from that point that it's actually pretty hard to move up. And okay, it's a wide road when they get down off the descent onto the Aurelia in San, in San Remo, and you can't. You've got the room to move up, but if you're by that point, you might be you know 200 meters from the where you need to be at the front to start making the pace and to to well to tow your sprinter, your fast guy back um, before that that hesitation kicks in. So I just thought that that was probably key, that was probably fatal for Van Aert. I mean, I see he's saying, there are already quotes from him saying that Van der Poel and, and Van Aert, well, he felt they rode for the victory and others rode for the podium. I, I think that's possibly a little bit harsh. I mean, on the issue of not having a teammate, not having, I mean, when I think of the sort of perfect guy to do this and people might sneer because of, you know, the, the period of cycling in which it took place and, and what we know about his career. But a George Hincapie, what George Hincapie did for for Mark Cavendish in, 19, sorry, in 2008, I think that's the kind of perfect prototype of the rider to, you know, move up and drag a sprinter or just set the pace for a sprinter in those key last two kilometers but you know am I oversimplifying things being unfair um, being harsh in sort of scratching my head at why this position this role isn't being covered by the strongest teams because Quick it's not corner it was two, 2009 sorry 2009 yeah. Happy, yeah. just before I uh, make a point on that I mean Roglic was the only one who made a kind of an attempt at a uh, kind of conventional counter-attack really wasn't it to to one of Pogachar's moves I think the the third of Pogachar's actual moves and I suppose picking up on what you just said Daniel about um, Pogachar going in all the wrong places probably the ideal place would have been where Soren Crow Anderson went I mean that would have been the sweet spot I suppose but Crow Anderson got there first and Pogachar um, just uh, you know sort of burned his legs with a with an earlier effort in terms of the sprinters i mean who had someone up there um i think israel premier tech had chris nylans uh, in there with giacomo nitzola but they were in the second half of that group um arno demar was on his own i think until uh, no um pasha was in there till quite late wasn't he i think i think um, the first 14 positions were filled by riders from 14 different teams yeah so it's it's there's no one there is there to do that job to do that work of um of, of closing Which gaps seems or strange dragging. well do you think they just thought we won't bother doing that or do you think it was well, because no, it was no, so no, hard it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's strange that a team like Groupama FDG for example that the, the, the only rider in their team who can get over the Poggio in that front group is Arno Demar that does seem odd doesn't it yeah really which I think is the point Daniel's making yeah I mean it's you know in an average race um, any kind of race if you said there were 
you know, in the, the top 14 positions, you would expect one of the strongest teams in the peloton, Yuma, Visma, UAE or Ineos to have two or three or one of the other I mean, strong I think, teams. But uh, You know, I made the comment earlier about Roglic. I was at the GP de Dinat on, on just Thursday, you know, 48 hours ago. A tough race over 200 kilometres over lots of cobbles and climbs um, and Roglic was up there riding hard and I think the team had made the decision ultimately that trying him out in the cobbles ahead of the Tour de France stage on the cobbles was slightly more important than keeping him fresh from Milan San Remo so I, I would, wouldn't be surprised at all if, if the edge was taken off Roglic's performance today and that might be a decision that they regret because Roglic could have been a really important rider in the finale for Wout van Aert as you said, Daniel, I mean, the unusual thing isn't just that the group was so small on and after the Cipressa, around uh, just under 30 riders, wasn't it? The surprising thing was that it didn't come back. You know, there was a big group behind and mm. the gap on the finish line was not huge. It was only um, a, a minute and 15 seconds and then, uh, you know, another group, little group, perhaps inside a couple of minutes. Um it's the fact that it didn't all come back together again between the Cipressa and the Poggio, which we have seen happen before, haven't we? We've seen significant splits on the Cipressa, but the the conventional thing is that it comes back together. Um, perhaps it's Although you could argue you could argue that at least fourteen teams with their best riders were represented in that front group. So who was going to bring it back? Quite. I mean, I think this is again we're probably not qualified to really um, delve very deep into this but this is one race where um, perhaps more than all other of the classics at least we see the influence of aerodynamics as well and you know we see what quantum leaps have taken place in aerodynamics over the last f sort of few years or, or decade or so you know you look at the average speed of the winner 45.3 kilometers an hour and you know the faster a race goes the the bigger you know the bigger gaps are going to be and the more sort of differences in in ability difference in watts are going to be accentuated and you know as you say Lionel that second group not coming back it's I think it's probably partly a result of that uh, well my main relief I mean is that um Matty Moritz's dropper seat post didn't malfunction and he we were you know exposed to the sight of him trying to hang on with his knees around around, around his ears as he was pedaling <laughs> On a on a child's bike to the finish, uh, that didn't happen. But I'm sure we'll see dropper seat posts um, employed by by more riders. I'd also be curious to know what kind of gear he had on his bike because his legs were moving very slowly um, as while well. he was going very quickly. So you know there was a, he said at the end, didn't he, that he'd prepared for this all all winter thought and thought about it a lot. His legs were moving so slowly. I thought he bonked coming into the last kilometer. <laughs> he looked as though he was about to get off. Well, yeah. Well, listen, chap, should we should, should we leave it there? Because the idea with these episodes of Arrivé is it's going to be short and punchy and there'll be more Melanston Rainbow chat, I'm sure, in the normal midweek episode because this episode is an addition to the weekly episode which will be coming out sometime any, around midweek. Any flops in our hot takes? I mean, I had a few bets, which none of which came in for me. Filippo um, Ghana. I had Arno De Ma actually and I was very hopeful about him at one stage because he was right mm. up there um, over the Chipressa. I had him, I had Stebar, didn't really see him much at all. Um, Surencra Anderson as well. De, De Mar is clearly in great condition, isn't he? Um, but he's just lacking something in the, in the big bunch sprints. But the fact that he was there today suggests he's in great condition. I was confused when I saw Sagan uh, drop back with a mechanical problem and his team remain at the front. 
Well, now we know they were working for Anthony Turgis, maybe, who we haven't really mentioned at all. But second today, uh, he's been sort of hinting at a major result in one of these races, hasn't he? But that is, that's the best he's managed. And uh, just just reward, I guess, for the criminally underrated. Well, and everyone in that team keeps raving about the influence of Peter Sagan and particularly the the sponsors that Peter Sagan has brought in. Um, I've hardly read an interview with a Total Energy rider this year in which they've not mentioned how good their bikes are and how good their um, their clothing is. But the main beneficiaries, or the, the only beneficiaries um, at the moment, do not seem to be Peter Sagan. Second in Milan San Remo today, fourth in the Tour of Flanders in the past, Turgis. That big win is coming, Daniel. Don't worry. It will be Paris-Roubaix, maybe. And then he'll be criminally overrated <laughs> yes. after that. Listen, shall we leave it there, chaps? I was just going to say very quickly, sorry, um, Ghana apparently was under the weather as well. And I think, you know, in in picking out uh, people who didn't perform, clearly the flu that swept through the peloton in Paris-Nice, but also perhaps, uh, you know, riders picking up, um, you know, colds and flu and what have you. Uh, It's been a fairly chilly spring, hasn't it? Um, So I don't know whether that's... Even you're battling through a head cold line. I am. I am Richard. Yeah, I nearly didn't make Milan San Remo today, but I watched every single minute of it today. <laughs> so you, fa- so you two didn't effort. have to. Fabulous effort <laughs> from your sick bed. Well, listen, we'll be back with Arrivé uh, uh, in a couple of weeks after the Tour of Flanders, I would I would guess. Um, and uh, yeah, email us. Let us know what you think. If you have any suggestions, contact at com, And we'll be back midweek. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. Thank you, Lionel. Thanks, Rich. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.